Hello and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast presented by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. On this podcast, we discuss issues of interest to the local, national, and international endurance community. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the visits and the likes on the Facebook page. Speaking of Facebook, I got my inspiration for the topic of this week's episode uh, from Facebook. I was on there the other day and I saw my friend Travis, uh, who is a virtual friend. I've actually never met Travis in person, but he and I have been Facebook friends for the better part of last year. Uh, And he had just had a hard time completing his last long run prior to the New Orleans Marathon next weekend. Uh, And he posted, quote, anyone who knows me knows my attitude towards rest. It's something that I can do when I'm dead. Well, Sunday's humbling long run told me in no uncertain terms that I'm worn out. A 20-mile run ended after 9 miles. Admittedly, I was running while dealing with a case of mild bronchitis. So this week, I've been pulled way back. No swimming while I deal with bursitis in my elbow. Only light running and cycling. I'm doing my part by closing my laptop and sending my last email at midnight. Good night. I followed up with him and said, Hey, you just gave me a hook for my podcast on fatigue. Uh, And he wrote back, Quote, I did this last year, too. I just refused to acknowledge the fatigue until I got a hip injury that nagged me for a month, unquote. Um, Travis is a, a very accomplished athlete. Uh, I mentioned that he's getting ready to do the New Orleans, Louisiana Marathon next weekend, but he's also an Ironman. It's not like he's new to this sort of thing. Um, but his attitude, I think, is really common. Uh, this push, 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 ignore the fatigue, ignore the fatigue, uh, is something that, that we see among endurance athletes of all levels. Um, now, what he was describing was a sort of systemic fatigue. Uh, the injury and the illnesses and the overall adrenal wearing down that takes place when somebody refuses to rest over the course of a training block, um, when they refuse to let their body rebuild itself stronger than it was prior to doing all the training. Um, but as I started putting together a podcast about systemic fatigue, I started finding all these great and interesting resources about immediate fatigue, i.e., why is it that we fall apart in a race, or why is it we're forced to slow down during a race of any distance? Um, and ultimately, I didn't figure I could really do a podcast on fatigue without first talking about that immediate fatigue. And then there's so many great resources on that immediate fatigue, in addition to the ones about the systemic fatigue, that I decided to break this podcast into two parts. And so uh, this week, we're going to do the first part. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the immediate fatigue and some of the things that causes us to slow down uh, when we're actually in a race. Um, In two weeks, we're going to do part two, in which we talk about systemic fatigue, that ongoing, enduring fatigue that ultimately can lead to the dreaded overtraining syndrome. Uh, In the middle, next week, we're going to have a conversation with Stacey Perlis from Wahoo Fitness, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. So, uh, by all means, here's part one. Stay tuned for part two. Anyway, today, immediate fatigue, the fatigue that we're all familiar with. Now, even if you feel like you've never gotten to that place where you have the overtraining syndrome, where you're worn down over the course of time, everybody who's done any type of physical activity, um, certainly any endurance sport, uh, is familiar with getting tired of fatigue, of being forced to slow down because your body is starting to quit on you. Um, And as it happens, this is a really exciting time. Uh, to study fatigue and to talk about fatigue because the ideas about fatigue and the entire theoretical framework on which the studies of fatigue are built is actually changing right now, and they have been over the course of the past 15 years. For decades and decades and decades prior to the 2000s, we believe that took place uh, fatigue took place solely 
at the muscle site on the muscular level. And we figured that there was one of two mechanisms by which it took place. Um, Either it took place by addition or by subtraction, if you will. Now, by addition, what that means is that they figured that that something was happening at the muscular level that was creating byproducts, and those byproducts were essentially gumming up the muscular process and forcing us to slow down. Um, The most famous of those byproducts is lactic acid, and lactic acid was for decades blamed for all ho- uh, all sorts of maladies related to fatigue. Uh, in fact, lactic acid is not nearly as bad as a lot of people gave it the credit for. Um, and lactic acid, calcium, whatever it happened to be, um, all of these things in some way hindered both our muscles' abilities to fire and, more than that, our muscle group's ability to act in a synchronized way. Um, and then the other side would be depletion. Well, the, the thinking there was that essentially our fuel had gone away, that over the course of a race, over the course of some sort of major effort, uh, we were, became more and more depleted. Um, we either lost our ATP or we lost our blood glucose or we lost our glycogen or we lost our branched-chain amino acids or whatever it happened to be. Over the course of time, we no longer had the fuel that was necessary in order to keep our muscle group synchronized or to keep our muscles firing. These things would, of course, lead to some sort of catastrophic fatigue, um, some sort of breakdown that would lead to muscular shutdown. Um, The brain in this model was fighting against the body. The brain was trying to push on and and force the body to continue doing what it was doing, um, regardless of the fact that the the body was trying to shut down. And so the brain was kind of on your side if you had a big goal. The brain was working with you to try and overcome your body. And actually, if you look at a lot of motivational posters or even today a lot of commercials that you see about Ironmans or marathons and stuff like that, they're still kind of based on that brain is working with you, mind over matter, how tough are you type idea. Um, But all the newer models show that the brain is not really necessarily on your side if you are trying to overcome your body. Um, Rather, the brain is the primary regulator of your physical condition. That while your body probably could continue, your brain actually holds it back. All of those things that I just mentioned, the depleted glucose, the uh, the depleted branched-chain amino acids, the, the lesser glycogen, or in the so-called addition model, the presence of lactic acid or increased calcium ions, all of those things, it's now believed, are signals to the brain. It's actually letting the brain know that the body's starting to get worn out, that it's starting to approach something less than a no- normal homeostatic state. And so this idea that the brain... When it gets that feedback from your body, it begins to actually shut down your body. It begins to regulate your body lest your body gets into a dangerous place. Um, Your brain is literally holding you back from doing the stuff that your body is capable of doing because your brain is focused on preservation. Um, Now, the most extreme of this way of thinking is what's called the central governor hypothesis, and we don't need to go too much into that, but but this idea of, of brain as regulator um, has become the predominant model, the predominant lens through which people look at fatigue and the body and exercise science over the course of about the past 15 or 20 years. Um, and it's opened the door for all sorts of really interesting and very useful work uh, that we can look at both as athletes and as coaches. And so what I want to do here is, is take a look at several studies and talk about some of the takeaways we have from all this really recent and very fascinating research here. Um, 
best place to start is is with a really well-known 2009 study. Uh, it doesn't have a very creative name. It was called Mental Fatigue Impairs Physical Performance in Humans. Um, but in that one, they had cyclists ride at 80% for as long as they possibly could until they failed. Prior to putting them on the bikes, though, they split the cyclists into two groups. The first group, they had them do sort of something really mentally taxing for 90 minutes immediately prior to getting on the trainer and trying to ride at 80% for as long as they possibly could. Um, I think they had them watch like a really wrenching documentary. I think it was about the Holocaust or something like that. Um, And then the other group, the second group, they had them do something emotionally and mentally neutral. Um, they spent 90 minutes watching cartoons or something like that. Something that didn't really drain them at all. Uh, didn't require a great deal of engagement on the part of their cognitive faculties. They put them both on the bike and they had everybody riding at 80%. So presumably, regardless of their, their strength, everybody should be able to ride at about the same amount of time, for about the same amount of time, at 80%. And uniformly across the board, the people who went into the time trial more mentally drained because they watched the very wrenching documentary, uh, quit. They bailed out more quickly than the people who went in more mentally fresh because they had simply watched cartoons. Um, There was a follow-up of that in 2015, which was interesting, but was also given a very uncreative name. It was called Mental Fatigue Does Not Affect Maximal Anaerobic Exercise Performance. Um, They basically did the same thing. They drained people for 90 minutes, or they just showed them 90 minutes of of cartoons. And then, rather than putting them on the bike at 80%, they had them do a range of anaerobic things, so short bursts. They had them do a three-minute time trial to see how hard they could possibly go. Um, They test their leg strength. They did, like, maximum bench press and things like that. And they actually found that in that situation, the body was still physically capable of doing those very, very short things. Um, There's another study that I found out of Texas A&M recently, just in 2015 as well. Um, They actually had people do mental and physical tasks at the same time. So simultaneously, I couldn't quite find the way they operationalized this, but I'm willing to bet they put them on a bike. Um, A lot of these studies are done by people on bikes because you can control that situation so well. Um, And they put them on a trainer and, and of course, have a a wattage meter and all that sort of thing and a temperature and all sorts of gauges. So you're able to control that. So they like to put them on bikes. But anyway, um, they had them uh, doing mental and physical tasks at the same time. And they found that the people who are doing difficult mental tasks, the ones who are required to use their brain more while they were also engaged in physical activity, uh, got physically fatigued more quickly than those who were able to focus entirely on the physical task. Um, they said that they believed that brain resources were divided, was their word, uh, which may accelerate the development of physical fatigue. Um, so the big takeaway from these at the outset here, takeaway number one from all the, the studies about brain and, the, and fatigue, is that your mindset really matters when it comes to fatigue. That if you go into a training session or into a race in a fatigued state of mind, um, if you've been carrying stress in from work, or if you have some sort of really rough, difficult time immediately prior to it, if you're just sort of feeling shoddy, um, then that can affect your performance, particularly if you're doing something aerobic, something longer. If you're doing something short, quick, fast, maybe not. Maybe you can get over it for that very short amount of time. Uh, But something longer, uh, your mindset matters. Uh, A second set that I wanted to look at was uh, having to do with uh, what you can do with the brain if you stimulate various parts of the brain. Um, 
There is a 2015 study where researchers actually stimulated parts of cyclists' brains before having them complete a fourth-kilometer time trial. Um, the the brain that right now is believed to be most related to fatigue, they actually hooked electrodes up to it uh, extracorporally, and they stimulated it. Uh, and they found that those who had the stimulation had lower average heart rates, and their peak power went up by 4%, which... 4% is significant. Um, even though their uh, their peak heart rate and their, their peak uh, rate of perceived exertion stayed about the same, it does still suggests a pretty powerful influence of the brain. Uh, brain. Another 2015 study, uh, they simulated the brains of cyclists and had them do that 80% exhaustion, riding at 80% for as long as they possibly could. Um, it was less compelling. The difference between the people who had their brains stimulated and the people who didn't have their brains stimulated was not huge, but there was indeed a difference. And the people who had the the fatigue-reducing part of their brain stimulated uh, were able to ride just a little bit longer. Um, there's also a series of studies in 2013 that measured what happens if you train if you mess with people's brain chemistry, like their serotonin and their dopamine. Uh, they found that if you messed around with their serotonin, it actually slowed them down and they had no kick. Uh, and they found if they messed around with your dopamine, you could potentially uh, speed them up. And so the second big takeaway of this is that some of this stuff can actually be used for evil. Um, maybe the next big frontier in doping is actually what you could call neurodoping, uh, that they're actually going to be, be giving drugs um, or even techniques, not even necessarily drugs, that will stimulate people's brains prior to doing workouts that will enable them to work out at a higher level. Now, there's also some legal doping, if you will, that you can take from this. There are some, some benefits that you can get for yourself thinking about how the brain can be stimulated to actually improve your performance. Um, and the one that most of us are probably familiar with is, of course, caffeine. Uh, there was a 2000 study, uh, a 2013 study, uh, that showed caffeine ingestion increased mean power output and reduced the total time in a 4K cycling time trial. Um, which is obviously pretty pretty significant. Uh, and then there was another 2015 study showed that ingesting caffeine actually helped badminton players, of all things, jump higher throughout the course of a match. Um, and so literally using caffeine, even though caffeine has no direct effect on your muscles, even though it's something that, that entirely stimulates your brain, it can actually increase the performance of your muscles in a sporting activity. So again... Um, you know, takeaway number two is that these things can be used for evil, uh, but but there are some levels of legal doping as well. Um, so, number three, before you start thinking about dulling the pain, there was actually a 2006 study um, where they gave fentanyl, the prescription drug, to a whole bunch of uh, cyclists, and the cyclists did a 5K. Um, and essentially what that did is it blocked the pain receptors in the brain of the cyclist. And so they figured that if they had no feedback from their body, that their brain would just be free to just let their body go to its full potential. Uh, and what they found was that uh, it completely destroyed the sense of pacing, um, that without any sort of feedback coming from the body to the brain, the, the cyclists hardly knew how to ride. Uh, they went out way too fast, and all of them went quickly into oxygen jet and, and had to, to limp home. A lot of them collapsed at the finish line, as a matter of fact, because they were so completely drained. Um, and so takeaway number three, given that, is that all of that stuff that's going on into your bo- in your body, you need to be listening to it. Uh, you need to make sure that you're keeping your brain in tune with what's going on inside your body um, because all of those fatigue signals that are going up to your brain are, are important uh, in executing your race strategy and ultimately in 
making a successful race. Um, a fourth group of research studies that I found focused on deception um, and and showed us what we could possibly do if, in fact, we didn't know exactly what we were doing. Um, in 2012, there was a study where uh, uh, exercise scientists work with a group of weightlifters over the course of six weeks. And at the end of every six weeks, or end of every week during that six weeks on Fridays, they would have the weightlifters do a maximum incline bench press. Um, and they would measure how that looked uh, throughout the course of the week and, and of course, what they, what they got at the end. And then during the sixth week, not to that point, but during the sixth week, they actually went into the weight room and they changed all the labels on the weights um, such that all the weights were now mislabeled and they all appeared to be lighter than they were. And they found that when they did that, all of the weightlifters uh, lifted more, uh, up to an average of 20 pounds more on their incline bench press. 20 pounds more they did uh, because they thought they were doing about the same weight that they had always done. Um, there was another 2012 study uh, that they did with cyclists where they put cyclists in a cool environment, into a 21 degrees Celsius environment, and they had them ride for a while, and they measured their, their ability, their time trialing ability over a certain period of time. Then they put them in a hot situation in 31 degree Celsius weather um, and had them ride there. And of course, because it was hot, they didn't do as well as they had done when the weather was only 21 degrees Celsius, when it was much cooler. So then they put them for a third time trial back into the same place and they said, okay, now it's going to be 32 degrees. So it was actually hottest of the three but they didn't tell them that it was 32 degrees. Instead, they told them it was the mid-20s. Um, it was mid-20s Celsius. And so it was kind of a medium cool day. Certainly not as hot as 31, but not as cool as, as, as the 21 degree day either. During that third time trial, which was the hottest of the three time trials, where they should have actually had the worst performances, they had better performances than they did when it was 31 degrees. Um, now, they weren't quite as good as they were when the weather was truly cool, um, but they had better performances when they thought it was cool than they did when it was, when it was, uh, when it was hot and they knew it was hot. Um, and then finally, in another 2012 study, uh, cyclists did four short time trials. They were four-kilometer time trials. Um, they established their speed in the first two. And then on the third one, they put an avatar on the screen in front of them. And they said, this avatar is going the same speed that you established during those first two time trials. And so the avatar kind of sits in front of them, and they kept up with the avatar. And then they said, okay, we're going to do it one more time with the avatar here for the fourth one. And they told them that the avatar was going the same speed again, but in fact, they made it a little bit faster. They made it 102% of what their speed was. Uh, and damned if every single cyclist didn't beat their avatar, who is now going 102% of what had supposedly been their maximum during the prior three time trials. And so takeaway number four of all of this is that you're certainly you're clearly very capable of more than you think you are. Um, your brain is, is holding you back, and if there are some ways to kind of trick your brain, uh, by all means, do them. Um, my wife, I thought of her when I, when I saw this one, because my wife, when she did her first Ironman in Ironman Louisville, um, right around the 14, 15-mile mark of the run, she started to struggle a little bit, and she had kind of a, a struggling time through 17, 18, 19, 20 miles. Uh, she just kind of kept on plugging away. Um, and when she got to 20 miles, she said, there's six miles left. I can count to that. Um, and those are her literal words, and those are the words that went through her mind. I can count to that. Um, of course, she could have counted to it when it was 
10 or 12 or 15 or 26 miles for that matter. But for some reason, that, that six miles to go, she was able to wrap her mind around it and think that's not really all that far. Um, and she finished very strongly in that race. Um, Steve Magnus, who, who uh, is the coach at the University of Houston, has done a lot of science, um, writes about a lot of these same studies in one of his books. And he said that most of us are familiar, if we've run cross-country, with that coach who stands over on the side of the course and says, only 400 meters to go, when in fact it's like a half mile. Um, and, and certainly we speed up and we think there's only 400 meters to go. Um, and with that in mind, actually with 400 meters to go, I have one last study that I did want to share as well. Uh, and that's a study from 2011 in which they uh, pioneered the term the hazard score. Um, the hazard score is, is basically a score that we subconsciously calculate in our mind when we're in a race. And the hazard score can be calculated by multiplying our rate of perceived exertion at the time of the calculation times the fraction of the distance remaining. And once we get that score in our head, that determines whether we're going to speed up or slow down. So let's say, for example, you're running a 5K. Um, easy calculations. You're running a 5K. You get right to the halfway part of a 5K. You have about one half of the time remaining. And at that point, you're going pretty hard because it's a 5K. So you're at a rate of perceived exertion of about eight. Um, eight times one half equals a hazard score of four. So you're not really going to speed up right there in the middle of the race because a hazard speed of score is probably a little bit higher than, than you want it to be. But then let's imagine you get to the last tenth of the race just over a quarter mile left to go in the race. And at this point, of course, it's late in a 5K, so your RPE is 10. You are all the way up against the wall at this point. Um, but you only have one-tenth of the race to go. So RPE of 10 times one-tenth, that's a hazard score of only one. Um, it's significantly less hazardous for you to speed up at that point than it would have been for you to speed up in the middle of the race, even though you weren't going as hard in the middle of the race. Uh, and this is one reason why we tend to, to always have kicks at the finish of the race. It's also, by the way, one of the reasons why we tend to have our slowest splits in the middle of the race. Um, right past the halfway point, about the third quarter of the race, regardless of the distance of the race, everything from an 800-meter race, a half-mile race, all the way up to a marathon or even an ultra-marathon, it's usually the third quarter of a race that's the most difficult quarter of the race to try and maintain pace. Because it's at that point that you've been working pretty hard for a while, and your rate of perceived exertion is pretty high, but yet you still have a significant portion of the race to go. The hazard score there is very intimidating. So, takeaway number five from that one, from the hazard score, is that everybody is tough in the finale. Uh, my coach in college used to always say, everybody's tough in the last quarter, and I think that's true. Um, people who win races, people who really do well, people who perform well, are the ones who recognize that they need to push through that middle part of the race, through that third quarter of the race, because everybody is going to have a kick at the end. Regardless of how bad you feel at the halfway point, you're always going to have a kick at the end. Uh, everybody's tough at the end. Uh, the toughest people are the ones who are tough in the middle. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Uh, lots of research, like I said, on the brain and fatigue, and this was just part one. Uh, we'll talk more about part two, um, or we'll talk more about fatigue in part two uh, in two weeks. Uh, we'll talk about systemic fatigue. In the interim... Next week, 
for episode five, um, we have an interview with Stacy Perlis from Wahoo Fitness. Now, Wahoo Fitness, as many of you know, is an Atlanta-based company which makes all sorts of products that enable athletes to measure data. Uh, and we're going to be talking to Stacy not only about Wahoo as a company, but also about uh, some of the things they might have on the horizon um, and about indoor sports and data in general and all that sort of thing. You'll recall that when we talked to Will Kramer last week, he was talking about how one of the big trends inside shoes this year and in gear this year is all about gathering data and getting more metrics. Um, and, and Wahoo's a big part of that movement as well. So we'll be talking to Stacy about that. Let me encourage you to go on the blog, go on the Facebook page, uh, send me a tweet, whatever it happens to be, and give me any questions that you want me to ask Stacy. Um, I uh, uh, I, I look forward to having that, that talk with her, and by all means, um, I, w- I would like to relay to her any questions that you have for her about indoor training, about metrics, about Wahoo stuff in general, uh, in particular. Uh, I, d- I do look forward to, to talking to her about that. Um, we have a little bit of something in- different for our outro today. Um, rather than my regular theme music that you all have heard a few times already, we actually are going to play the title track from a new EP from Mad Ace called Clever Girl. Uh, Mad Ace is a project of a student that I used to teach when I taught at Gra- Grady High School named Andrew Cleveland. Andrew is a phenomenally talented musician and all-around cool guy. Uh, he's made a series of videos uh, with his cello. He's a classically trained cellist um, that that are on on uh, on YouTube, and I'll, I'll be sure to link to those in the show notes. Um, he was also part of a five-man group who, when I taught them in world history for their final project, they made a 34-minute song about world history. I've put that on YouTube, and I will be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Um, before we hit play on the new song Clever Girl by Mad Ace, uh, I did want to encourage you to follow us at Pleasant Podcast on Twitter. Uh, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash pleasant podcast. And of course, go to the blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. We are now on iTunes, um, so you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, please review it, uh, give it some stars, uh, tell me what's going well and what's not going well, uh, and please subscribe to it as well. The uh, it's kind of, might be a little bit difficult to find in there. Most pleasant exhaustion, I believe, it's listed as one word um, in the directory. So of course you can search most pleasant exhaustion; it will pop up. But if you put most p Uh, with no spaces, it will pop up in your search immediately. So by all means, check that out. Uh, Let me encourage you also to look at ITL Coaching uh, on Twitter, at ITL Coaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance, and of course on the website, itlcoaching.com. Let me also please encourage you to uh, check out my wife's Facebook page. She's the other sponsor of this podcast. Uh, she is now a travel planner uh, with a particular focus on Disney, but she can travel, uh, plan any travel that you need. Uh, there are no fees. There are no upcharges. Uh, so why wouldn't you hire her to travel, make all your travel plans for you? Uh, you can find her at facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV. That's Casey is K-A-C-I-E, Travel Planner MEV. Uh, you can also drop her line, Casey at UGA.edu. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next week when we're interviewing Stacey Perlis. And now, Clever Girl by Mad Ace.